0: From our 901 Mission Street studios, you are listening to the San Francisco Chronicle.
1: Welcome back to The
2: Big Event. We're welcoming punk rock royalty into our archive studio today. Penelope Houston of the 1970s San Francisco band The Avengers is here. The Avengers were famous because they were one of the first San Francisco punk bands, headlining at the Mabuhai Garden shows produced by Dirk Dirksen but I think they've endured because the music holds up so well. Houston and guitarist Greg Ingraham seem to appreciate melody. Houston has a world-class punk rock snarl, but she also cared about what she was singing. Many of their songs sound as urgent in 2019 as they did in 1979. Here's an example, Houston singing the American and me, probably the Avengers most famous song. The Avengers broke up before they became famous, and Houston had about three or four cool careers since then. She's released more than a dozen albums as a singer-songwriter, most recently on Market Street about her travels through San Francisco. She also works at the San Francisco Public Library, among other things building their punk rock archive. There's a lot of archive talk in this episode. And she's a fantastic storyteller. Music critic Idine Vaziri joins me for the interview, and the time went by so quickly Houston talks about how San Francisco received punks in the 1970s, not well, and the time the Avengers opened for the Sex Pistols at Winterland. And we talk about their reformed Avengers. They've been playing shows in San Francisco with touring outside the state coming up, something the original Avengers never did. We're your concierge for culture in the Bay Area. I'm Peter Hartlob, and this is The Big Event. Welcome to the big event, Penelope Houston. Welcome to our archive and the Chronicle, and Ideen Vaziri, welcome
1: back.
0: Thank you. Yeah. Thank you.
1: I'm really happy to be here. I love archives. This is your- turned into an archive nerd. So archives,
2: um, you're at the library too. We're going to talk about that a little bit. How does our archive compare to your archive, both in size and breadth and just ambiance?
1: Well, we have we have a couple different. Our photos are in two different places. We have the historic photo collection, which has got all the gray boxes and the white gloves and the you know temperature controlled room, and everything's in perfect order, and people know where it is. And then we also have the uh, Examiner photomorgue, and that is down in Brooks Hall, which is basically the dungeon of the library, which is underneath the Civic Center Plaza and it's huge and you go down there and you have to unlock doors with keys and like it's all dusty and then there's this huge huge place with all these drawers and each drawer has a million ancient you know old yellowing envelopes and the envelope has a subject matter on it and you go the pages go down there and search through the subject matters for what people are trying to find (laughs) and oh no that's a clippings archive i'm totally lying the photos are in an actual safer place than that, but they're in boxes and the thing, I guess the weird thing is that they're all under subject headings that we didn't create. Yeah. So they're old subject headings. So, you know, you have to look, just use different words for stuff, which is odd, you know.
2: Well, we're thrilled to have you here. Um, and we're going to talk a little bit more about the, the library, but, um, and, and your archive that you're building but uh, kind of gonna go chronologically if that's cool. You came to San Francisco not when you were a small child. You were a teenager?
1: I was 19 um, and came here to go to the Art Institute, mm-hmm. the, the San Francisco Art Institute uh, on Chestnut Street, not the other one. <laughs> like, people are always confused. And um, that was in the dawn of 1977. I got here like December 31st, 1976, and had nowhere to stay. It was. The people I was staying with were like rajneesh uh, cult people, and they were getting kicked out on the 1st, which was basically the next day. So then I was on the streets with my suitcase. It was I was such an idiot. And then I started going to the school, and I found a place to live, and I met people that wanted to start bands, and the Mabuhay was starting up. And uh, I think like the Ramones had already been through town the previous August but it was pretty early in the whole realm of punk
0: and and you'd grown up listening to British folk music and kind of really eccentric stuff what what was it about punk that that drew you in what
1: what? um I guess that it was just that I could do it myself you know I (laughs) make up my own rules I could quote my (laughs) quote myself um I could, uh, there was no There was no requirements um, to be in a punk band. You could just join if you had an attitude, and I had an attitude, so I was like, I'm going to do this. I'm going to be the singer of the Avengers. Yeah. Um, I'd been listening to Patti Smith and Brian Ferry and Lou Reed and some of the precursors to punk, so when it kind of crawled over from from England I was ready to pounce on it right what was
2: the city like what was san francisco like was it a punk receptive town or or you know was it really a progressive place yet no
1: <laughs> <laughs> the city was kind of it, it's weird cuz when i think of the city then i picture it in black and white i picture <laughs> the streets empty of people Um, kind of overcast and people, a few cabs driving around, but like nothing happening, no color, no real scene, no nightlife. If you went to the hate at that time, um, the hippie thing was dead and kind of shriveling up and sad. And, uh, we all hung out in North beach. Um, and you could find places in Chinatown for super cheap, or there were some warehouses, uh, Out on Third, out on Third Street, in Dogpatch, what's now called Dogpatch. So San Francisco at that point was kind of like recovering from the hippie invasion, I guess, and uh, it was bleak.
0: Yeah. So you met you met these guys in art school, and you said, "I'm going to be the lead singer of your band, The Avengers." (laughs) Um, And it happened, and at that point. Punk was inclusive. I mean, there were a lot of uh, women fronting the bands, and oh how yeah, how would you describe?
1: People often say, "Like, what was it like being a woman in punk rock?" And, and at that point, I just considered myself a punk rocker. There were so few of us that we had a band together, and um, there were lots of bands with um, gay people and um, lots of women in bands, and a few people of color in bands. But you know not a ton. But yeah, everybody went and supported everybody else, you know. Um the scene was small, I'd say when you played the map to your biggest crowd it would be 400, you would know, you know, 300 of them. Uh so it hadn't bloomed into this gigantic thing yet. It was still there was only a couple places to play and then when people would split off like new youth and i created this group because i think they were mad because they couldn't get into the Mab because the Mab was 18 and over because it was had a you know a dining room or whatever (laughs) so they could have people 18 and over in there but there were people under 18 that were mad about that so they started this group called new youth and they were very politically correct and everything and um I think they picketed one of our shows because we were charging maybe $3.75 <laughs> instead of $3. <laughs> <laughs> so, or maybe we actually went and broke the, we broke that level and went up to $4 per ticket or something, I can't yeah. remember. But um, the splits were not very serious. There there are people who who say, like Tuxedo Moon, they like to say, yeah, the punks didn't accept us. And it's like, no, we played with you guys all the time and you were <laughs> accepted. It, it, it was so small, I guess, that when there was a little f- fissure, then people were like, oh, it's cracking into parts. Or the whole, this is punk rock, and this is New Wave. Like, oh, and these two things are different. But it was small enough, so it, th- the first couple of years, it wasn't different.
2: Where were you yeah. living? What, what was your day-to-day
1: like? Did you have a day job? Oh, no. Yeah, No, you didn't have a job. it was a time you could live in san francisco and not have a job you knew people that worked at restaurants you knew people who worked at bars and you just like eat a lot of top ramen um i was living at first in a warehouse oh at first on houston alley behind bimbos found a street with my name on it that's when i was going to the art institute so it was right there you know i had to walk a block to go to school And um, then I moved in with Danny Furious, uh, the drummer for the Avengers, who was also my boyfriend, and he lived in a warehouse uh, at the Canning Company, which was on 3rd Street. And um, that's where there were a bunch of rehearsal spaces there and different artists there. And it was pretty bleak out there, too, but fun. I I think I had blue hair at the time, and I remember taking the, um, the 15 bus out there and people on the bus just like what's what all <laughs> that, that hair oh my god um but then we got a place in north beach on mason street i want to say it was right on a cable car line and uh we lived there danny and i lived there with jimmy wilsey the bass player for the avengers and tony kinman who was the bass player for the dills we had a little punk rock house at that point point. and then we moved to Folsom Street. And then we broke up. Yeah, you, in, <laughs> that's two years. In that's two in years, two of my life
0: years right. though, you played like something like hundred shows. Is that right? You were one
1: hundred and eleven <laughs> Avengers wow. shows. Wow. Maybe fifty percent of them were at the Mab. <laughs> uh, Dirksen used to like to book people two nights in a row. So if you if he thought you could headline, he would make you do, he'd give you a Friday, and then he'd make you do Thursday, or he'd give you a Saturday, and he'd make you play Sunday. So he was trying to like make the best of having a headliner. So you always had to play two nights.
2: Was there, was there any thought of, I mean, th- there were no record labels coming to these clubs and um, was there any thought of you know, putting out an album and having to get to Europe and becoming a bigger thing or was that just not even part of this ethos?
1: Uh, no, we couldn't really imagine that the only band that had an album out at that time was the dickies they got signed to a major and everyone was like what <laughs> um so they had an album out but but until slash records came along really nobody was putting out albums at all um our first record was a three song ep on danger house And that came out in October. We'd only been together for a few months at that point. So that was kind of a miracle that they were like, oh, yeah, we want to put out your record. You're good. But I feel like at that point, for all these bands that were starting, the idea of an album is not a good idea. To put out a single or three songs, you're going to take your best work Mm -hmm. and you're going to put it out there. So you had a lot of small records that sounded really good instead of a lot of big records that sounded Like, you didn't want to listen to half of it. And now that people can just record a record in their bedroom and put it up on the internet in a week is a terrible thing.
2: (laughs) What was the first song you recorded?
1: Uh, It would have been um, We Are the One, I Believe in Me, and Car Crash. Those were the three songs that were on that EP. And that's the first time I was ever in the studio. I remember uh, I Believe in Me was a song where there was just a chorus and then i would just make up the verses. Uh-huh. So when we got in there the band was playing and i was singing what i didn't know was a, a scratch vocal, you know, just like raving on. And then then they're done and they're, they're like, "Okay, do you want to do your vocal now?" And i was like, "No. <laughs> that that you you get what you got. That's it. That's that's what you're gonna have on the record. I'm not going back in there. Very
0: punk rock. Yeah.
2: Is that what we're listening to yes. now? These usually That's awesome. Yeah.
1: Oh. And it's still and it's still a song where I just make it up um, on the spot. So even though I'm still doing the Avengers after all these years, that one song can have some um, moments of my current life in it. Yeah. Or current news events or whatever. Cool. Like screaming about you know Kavanaugh or whatever. <laughs> And I believe in me.
0: The uh, of course the Avengers opened for the Sex Pistols on what was the that lineup's last day live show ever at Winterland, and that was a Bill Graham show. Um, lots going on there. Uh, did you know what you were getting into, and what are what are the memories that stand out for you from that show?
1: Well, it was the thing about that show was there were so many people there. And like I said, there are really only 400 people in this scene. So who were these other 5,600 people? Because <laughs> I think it was sold out at about 6,000. And um, they were just people that had read about the Sex Pistols or read about punk rock probably from, you know, well not from Joel Salvin because I don't think he'd written about us at that point. But uh, that it was this horrible circus of freaks and, you know, and people doing unnatural acts and you would come there and spit on the stage as much as you could and throw things so by the the nuns opened and they were not happy about that and um, then the avengers came out and the first thing that happened to me is i slipped on the stage (laughs) because it was covered in spit and i didn't fall all the way to the stage but it was like what so we got up there and we were like nervous um and you know kind of terrified and if you watch there's a there's a video easily findable on on the internet, if you watch us, you can see how our confidence level kind of grows through our set. And by the end of the set, we're sort of, like, triumphant and and having uh, a great time. And then the pistols come up there, and they're just, like, burnt out from their tour. They know it's the last show. They're all kind of like, ah. um, it was It was crazy. And I went out into the audience. I'd never really been to a giant rock show wow. before. Um, during the pistols set and... It was one of those things where you try to get to the front and you can lift your feet off the ground and be held up by all the other sweaty bodies all you know, surrounding you and people are being squeezed out of the crowd and handed up to the stage and passing out and stuff. It was fairly intense and I didn't stay
0: there very long, but um,
1: it was a scene.
0: What, what was it like doing a Bill Graham show after doing the these Bill, small club shows? Bill
1: Graham came and grabbed the guy who was... Who was it that was doing the emceeing? Richard Meltzer? Yeah, that sounds right. And he would, I think maybe he used the N-word or something. He was trying to provoke the audience. And in, anyway, um, Bill Graham, I feel like, was not happy that this whole thing was happening in his Winterland. And it was one of the last, was it one of the last shows there? I feel like it d- Winterland didn't go on that much longer. Anyway, I saw him drag Richard Meltzer off the stage and like... You know, it was like he was ready to punch him. He he had his hands around his throat. I was terrified. It was like, (laughs) this innocent little 19-year-old punk rocker, or 20 at that point. And I was like, oh, Bill Graham, he's a vicious man. And people were like, oh, Bill Graham, he did so much. And I'm like, nah. (laughs) It's scary.
0: This is not like our little club shows. (laughs) Right,
1: exactly. It was just like, hmm
2: you mentioned that you went and, and saw the band. Did you do that a lot? I mean, with the shows that you went to, did you like seeing the other bands too, and did that kind of inform, inform oh, we, you?
1: Yeah, because it, most of the other shows we ever did were smaller, and we were actually, after our first month, we were the headliners of our almost all of our shows. So, um, But the other bands would be our friends. We played oh, with a lot of bands in L.A. that got much bigger than us, like X and the Go-Go's and... Um, but and the Dead Kennedys opened for us once. But we would go; those were our friends, and we would see the opening bands. Whereas now I'm like jaded, and if I don't know them, I'm like, oh, turn you know, put my head in, <laughs> pull my head out of the <laughs> backstage, or if there is one, and like, oh, they're good. Okay, I'll have to try to remember their name. Uh,
2: what's the What's the <laughs> best band you saw that no one talks about, either either live or, or just their material?
1: Um, the Screamers are not very well covered. The Screamers are amazing, and, they're, and they were friends of mine, too. Um, Bink Section, they are friends of mine, too. <laughs> Bink Section had uh, Carol and Judy. There's some videos of them up online. Uh, they're, they were an amazing band. They were kind of, a, they would be more of the new wave, fall into the new wave uh, idea of, of the time. and um, But they're super funny, and Judy is amazing performer and, and lyricist um, No Mercy two women um, two gay women who did uh, uh, drums and vocals they're an amazing band and they didn't ever really get
0: covered Why did the Avengers break up after two years? Uh,
1: well probably because Danny and I broke up <laughs> Okay <laughs> um, We we'd been playing we had two records well we had the Danger single came out and then we'd recorded a four song EP 12 uh, inch for White Noise and it hadn't come out yet and I feel like oh and then Greg quit the band mm-hmm. that was sort of like Greg and Danny breaking up um, Greg and Danny had been friends in Fullerton and had been in bands together. Greg, the guitarist. Were, the guitarist, the yeah, yeah. guitarist who's who still plays with me now. Yeah, yeah. They had been best buddies in Fullerton, California, where they grew up, and had been in like high school bands together. And um, Danny had a, has a strong personality, and I think it was just hard for for everybody around him. <laughs> and so Greg quit the band and we got Brad Kent from um, Vancouver and Brad had been in some bands with like people from DOA and different groups up there. And so he came down and played guitar for us and his style was totally different than Greg's and we did write uh, Corpus Christi together which is an amazing song and complicated. He was a little more prog I would say. <laughs> um, and so that kind of changed the feel of the band a little bit. And then after maybe four to six months with Brad, I think we just felt like there were no opportunities, and I don't know, because that the, the White Noise record hadn't come out yet, so maybe if we'd waited. But I guess people, I wasn't the one that decided to break up the mm-hmm. band. I yeah. think it was, it was probably Danny it was like, this is done. And I was like, okay. Did it
2: feel like a momentous thing? I mean, did any of you think anybody would be talking about the band in 40 years?
1: Hmm. I feel like when we were doing punk in those years, 77 to 79, that it was our own movement, that it was like, I told people back then that we were a folk band and people just laughed. But what I meant was we were a porch band. We played in our own garages. We played in our own little you know house parties or whatever um we weren't trying to go out there and have a career we were music for ourselves for our own people um and i don't you know i remember doing an interview right before we split up or maybe right after we split up and i said you know we never thought of the avengers as a career a career move you know we were that was the difference between SF bands and Los Angeles bands in LA you had the presence of the music industry always you know people coming to your shows and whatever it just seemed like they were gonna um it just seemed like you know you might get signed by somebody at some point so you had to think about that but we in San Francisco didn't have that we didn't have to think about it and we didn't and we and the pink album had not come out until maybe three years later when Danny and Jimmy kind of cobbled together all of our recorded materials, which was a, ma- mostly demos and a few, um, and then the two releases. So uh, the pink album didn't come out until 81, 82, or 83. I can't remember which. Mm-hmm. And then that had a life of its own. It's like the Avengers sort of came back to life but i was already living in england at that point yeah so yeah i guess when we broke up we really had no idea <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> so you were you had moved to europe and you're establishing yourself as a singer songwriter and meanwhile the myth of the band just just kept growing like and
1: well actually i moved to to england and got married and had forgotten about the band right. and was just like doing like kind of weird uh, creative things that involve you know writing like I don't know just sort of not performance I didn't have a band when I was there but I thought about having a band and I thought about writing I just started writing some weird songs um, acoustic-y kind of like <laughs> rambling songs um, and I didn't think I was having a solo career I was just you know I was just living my life and wanting to be an artist and then uh, the Pink Album Came out and I was like, "What the heck is going on?" (laughs) And I came back and said, "You know, what is this?" Uh, And they were like, "Oh yeah, all the all the band members signed the contract, so you you might as well sign it too because otherwise you won't get paid." I was like, Okay (laughs) like an idiot. And then um, it kind of blew. It kind of had its own life and it took off. And then when I came back to San Francisco, is when I started my my solo career. And started playing, um, you know, Hotel Utah and like local, the music works and just local clubs, tiny clubs, and that grew and grew. And then I had uh, an album out. Bird Boys came out in '87, I think. And then another independent album. And then I got the um, attention of, of Warner's Germany. I started touring over there. I had two albums out on a German label, an right. indie label, and then that kind of turned into a career
0: and at the same time your bass player jimmy wilsey um who passed away last year um he went and joined silvertone chris isaac's band Mm -hmm. and he famously came up with that that riff that is on wicked game right right yes um what was your relationship like with him after the band did you stay in touch and what was he like uh, as a person I,
1: I hadn't really stayed in touch but once i moved back to san francisco i saw him a few times and he was totally into like working with me on stuff i think he helped me write um or he put one chord in a song i wrote which was on my first single that came out post avengers uh out of my life um and the name of the song and uh it's a very doomy kind of gothic kind of folk song. Um, but Jimmy was kind of willing to do anything. He liked helping people record. But he was busy with Chris Isaac, and Chris Isaac was kind of blowing up before the first album. They spent a lot of time on that, recording that album. And um, Jimmy was into that. And then once that first album came out and they had the whole Wicked Game thing happened, um, they kind of were on their own trail. I don't I think I only played with them once. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I got, and I think I got really drunk. <laughs> <laughs> Made a fool of myself. <laughs> that happens. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. W-
0: was it hard to establish your solo career when the with the myth of the Avengers kind of hanging over you and it just kind of growing on it like doing its own thing and growing on its own.
1: Well, I guess um, it's weird because the first show I did was at the Hotel Utah of my solo weirdo folky thing, and there was one guy there with a mohawk, I remember, (laughs) Um, and he was just standing there, and the Hotel Utah, if people don't know, is an extremely intimate, tiny little place with this cute little wooden stage and a piano in the corner, and I was pretty terrified being there and I realized that it's a lot harder to get out in front of an audience when you have like a, you know, a mandolin and a little piano and somebody playing congas and your voice is out there. It's like walking a tightrope over a giant empty space. And when you're in front of the Avengers, it's like you have this huge (laughs) balloon of sound that you can fall back into, you know, it was much, seemed much more dangerous to me what I was doing. Um, But... And I think yeah, there was occasionally people yelling for Avengers songs, and then we were invited um, to do Maximum Rock and Roll radio show, and I remember talking to um, Tim Johansson. Okay, sorry. I remember talking to Tim Johansson before the show. We had a nice conversation, and then we got on the air, and he's like, "Why did you sell out?" <laughs> and I said to him, and this is funny, I said. Tim if I wanted to sell out I would still be doing the Avengers Ooh. <laughs> the,
0: the thing about your solo material is that it's no less angry it it, it sounds prettier but th- the words that you're singing are and I think I remember you saying that the Avengers for all it's noise wasn't having the impact that you wanted um, and that you felt like you could get your message across more clearly in this kind of more more mellow setting I should say well,
1: the lyrics certainly are upfront when you're doing the more acoustic singer-songwriter material, and for me, that was that was what I always was into with the lyrics. Um, so, and also, I don't mind pretty melodies. I don't mind. You know, nice backing. So the, there's a kind of a cruelness to that, like the sharp edge in, in the middle. <laughs> You're biting into a fluffy, <laughs> nice fluffy dessert, and then there's a razor blade inside of it or something. Um, yeah, I always felt that the same attitude and righteousness and anger that I carried through the Avengers, um, it still exists in me. That's why I'm able to do the Avengers now. But it existed and does exist in my uh, solo writing as well so yeah if you won't let me
2: And I always I always thought the Avengers there's a lot of melody there too. Yes, yes. Um I, I I I discovered the Avengers long after I was, you know, eight, nine years old when they were out. I had a uh, um cousin who was an A and R guy for SST and he would send me Black Flag and Hoosker Do stuff and I'm just like, Can you send me anything that sounds like Led Zeppelin? <laughs> I didn't I didn't get into punk till I was in my teens. But I remember the Avengers were pretty accessible melodically because it seemed like that was a priority to you too along with getting your message across
1: yeah well the the you know I wasn't the only songwriter in the uh, I mean I didn't write the music for the Avengers so much uh, mostly just the, l- the lyrics and some of the melodies but um, I feel like the reason the Avengers has had such lasting power lasting staying power is that the songs are good <laughs> The songs are really good. And um, they're, they're, they are melodic enough for almost anybody to sort of hook into. And then, you know, the lyrics are interesting to people who are listening to things like that. So the package of it together it seems like it's somehow classic classic punk or something like that.
0: Yeah. D- didn't Green Day's uh, Billy Joe Armstrong kind of have a hand in encouraging you to get the Avengers back together or he did. start playing those songs again?
1: Yes. Um, Billy Joe asked me to, to do some recording with him. We wrote a song together and then we went to his house where he has a pretty fancy recording studio. I think it was with Kevin Army, And we recorded one of my solo songs. We recorded the song we wrote together and we recorded Corpus Christi. And when we did that, he brought in this bass player, Joel Reeder, who was like, 19 years old like a little kid <laughs> who'd been playing with um, Mr. T Experience and um, we did this recording and it was super fun I think we used Danny Panic for the drums and this was drums in like drums. 1999 99, right? 99 yeah. yeah and then uh, I was also at that time talking with Lookout Records and they wanted to do a record but uh, we didn't have access to any of the Pink album because there was this giant legal snafu going on and so we pulled all these songs out from the past, um, some songs that had never been on the Pink Album, and other songs that had uh, just different versions. And there were three songs that had never gotten on, that had never been recorded well. And so I decided to go back in to the studio with Greg, the original guitar player, and Joel and Danny Panic. And we did those three songs, and they ended up on. Uh, the lookout record which is called Died for your sins. And then it was like, okay, well that's coming out. We'll have to do a record release party and we did it at the um we did it at the Great American Music Hall and uh there was a gazillion people there. I think Grill Marcus was there too. And it was just like the Avengers were reborn. And then For, we started playing. How did it, playing. it feel?
2: How did it feel getting back? I mean, amazing. Did it feel the same?
1: It was amazing. It was like, oh, I'm screaming at the top of my lungs. <laughs> this feels so good. Um, yeah. It's cathartic to do that music again. And uh, when, it, when the song starts, I just, like, any doubts I have about, like, you know, can I do this, what I was doing as a teenager now? once the song starts and i start singing i'm in that moment and that moment exists just like it existed in 1978 or whatever and it's a beautiful moment
0: (laughs) and songs like the american and me are still totally relevant so sadly a lot of the
1: (laughs) a lot of the material yeah um the whole with the me too movement i realized when i was singing the song uh uh-oh it was like, oh yeah, this is the same. Like we're, I'm saying the same things now, and they just, and they're still relevant. They're still uh, resonate.
2: I go to the Ivy Room and uh, I saw American Steel, one of my favorite punk bands. And I felt like, it felt like old times until I pulled out my reading glasses to look at something on my phone. And then just like <laughs> reality jumped in. Uh, I wanted to ask you from the stage point of view, what are the crowds like? Does it feel similar? Is it something new? Is it, uh, when, when you get out there and perform, um, just looking out, what do you see?
1: I feel like now, actually, a lot more people know our lyrics and because they've had all this time to study. You know, the, the Pink album has been out for, you know, I don't know, 35 years or whatever, a long time, um, that there's actually more people that can sing along and, and know it uh, and know the songs, which is, is gratifying and it's nice. I always loved seeing there's a lot of women in the audience when we play. I love seeing that. Um,
2: Do people bring their kids?
1: Sometimes we'll play places that are all ages and there'll be somebody that will come up and they'll be like, you know, 15 and they're like, yeah, my dad loves (laughs) your band. I was like, cool. You know my dad. He talked to you once. I was like, great. It's fantastic. Thank you. Um,
0: Can you tell us a little bit about what you're doing at the library? First of all, you work in the special collections room at the main branch of the san francisco public library right
1: right um it's the san francisco history center and book arts and special collections um i'm kind of straddling those departments (laughs) illegally i once i started working there which is about five years ago uh, i saw they had this huge hippies collection and people would come in people would send students to go research it and i was like you know you really need to have a punk collection too like hippies is not the end is not the only culture that has come up in San Francisco. And so the city archivist, my boss is in Goldstein. She's like, okay, do it. And I was like, good. Cause I have a lot of stuff at home. <laughs> um, so I started to bring it in and I started to talk to other people and people were giving me photos and flyers and there. And a few people brought in full collections like um, uh, the widower um, of Celia from Frightwig brought in her f- whole collection. Um, the woman that ran the Chatterbox brought in the Chatterbox collection, which is like every flyer and all this information about booking and stuff when she was running the Chatterbox, which is a little later. It's like '90s. And I'm trying to stick between seven, mid '70s, mid '80s. Mm-hmm. But um, you know, if someone brings in a wonderful thing, we're not going to say now. Right. So. It's been accumulating over about two and a half years now. I've been doing it, and um, it's amazing the amount of stuff that comes in. Um,
2: Do you have a couple favorite things that have come to you, maybe things that you forgot or have a good story behind them?
1: Oh, there's this – there's a – Two years worth of what's called the Ivy calendar, which is uh, an individual named Ivy who was just on the scene. She wasn't in a band, but she was in the scene in 78, oh, 79 and 80. Actually, she created a calendar every month that had every single thing from films, shows, um, you know, just people playing music or whatever it would all be in her calendar so it has every club every movie theater that was showing like punk related films um art galleries photo shows it was all in there and it's every month and then on the back she would just have like little bits of gossip and stuff about bands going on tour and stuff like all this information and the ivy calendar is really hard to find and somebody brought in a full set of those i got very excited (laughs) i immediately scanned it so that i could you know so when journalists or authors come and say like well, what's you know what who played the deaf club i'm like here's a pretty good idea because for instance the deaf club did not take out ads Mm -hmm. if you if it's a club that took out ads it's easy to find out like you can go through the chronicle historical and which i do and look at all the Mubuhe ads and basically see everybody that played there or the listings.
2: And the Deaf Club was uh, it was in the Mission District. Uh, it was, it an was an actual, actual deaf, deaf
1: club. <laughs> yeah. Yes, it was the San Francisco <laughs> Club for the Deaf, um, and it was a kind of a little bar and space up there. And Deaf people would just hang out there, and they also had their meetings. I guess they had monthly meetings, but they would rent it out to whoever. And so. Uh, a, Punks started going in there. Robert Hanarhan brought people in there, and um, there was a mm, maybe less than a year, maybe a little bit more than a year's worth of shows there. And th- and I don't think they ever advertised uh, in the Chronicle. So it's kind of yeah. like it disappeared, hmm. you know.
2: Yeah, uh, Mabuhay and. Um, Temple Beautiful, there's a little bit of advertising, but Mabuhi, it's it, it was always in the listings. But Deaf Club, yeah. I haven't found it anywhere except we wrote this story in 1979, and right. The Chronicle discovers punk. You know? <laughs> and we went out to all three clubs, though, and Vicki McDonald, one of our photographers, shot about 100 photos. Um, but, uh, yeah. your Your collection, how can people see it? I mean, if someone wants to check it out and doesn't have something specific, can they come and see it? Do you ever have them on display, or is it mostly for people who are searching for something in particular? It,
1: occasionally we'll have parts of it on display, but um, it is available. It, it's an unprocessed collection at the moment. We need to get an archivist like to completely process it and get it up on our um our catalog our online catalog so that hasn't happened yet so it's best for people to like, contact me and then tell me when they're going to come in or i'll tell them when i'm there and they can come in when i'm there because i know the whole thing and i've created a little finding guide for the librarians and people there so that they can, <laughs> if somebody comes in that they, they could pull a box or two um, the collection is mostly uh, uh, zines flyers Uh, different ephemera, and we just got a really great collection of photos recently from uh, Elaine Vestal, who lived here in 78, 79, 80, 81. Took a lot of photos. Um, She just sent them to me from Colorado. I was like, (laughs) thank you. Mm -hmm. There's some amazing flyers in the collections um, from different important shows, like when The Clash played a secret show for New Youth Productions. Mm -hmm. They had to call, the, the flyers say, the only band that matters, and then it said, from the UK, or something <laughs> like that, like, and with, you know, negative trend. Um, it was, it was, uh, there's a few different shows that are really interesting that kind of you'd forget about if it weren't for these flyers. And I'm creating a database of all the flyers so that I can be able to search, you know, here's the ones I have for the Deaf Club, here's the ones I have for Temple Beautiful, Mabuhe, whatever. Um, Yeah, it's it's nerdy and interesting. Hmm. But people actually, to answer your question, people can come into the library when we're open and see the material. If they want to look at photos, they have to do it on the days the photo room is open Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday.
2: You work in San Francisco. Do you spend much time in San Francisco now?
1: Um, I live in Oakland. I spend most of my time when I'm not at work in oakland yeah i'm not in a time of my life where i can uh, go out to shows every night <laughs> <Yeah>.
0: <laughs> but your, your last solo album on market street which uh, i believe came out in 2012 um that was really about your your commute and the things you see and w- because you're getting off bar and walking to the library which is on the edge of the tenderloin mid-market um wh- what is Forty years later, uh, what is your perspective on the, on San Francisco? Is it the same city that you moved to from Seattle?
1: Uh, it's totally changed. It is really totally changed. Um, there is a bleakness in the in the area that the main library is at, <laughs> the Civic Center, Mid Market, Sixth um, Street. You know, the Tenderloin. Uh, definitely, you can see the difference between uh, the wealth that is now here that wasn't there in 1977 and, and the poverty um, of, of people who are living on the street. And I wrote that song basically about that area. This is for the wastrel Invisible and shamed Down on his knees on Market Street and it's still it's shocking, you know, that that is still going on and it hasn't been, that hasn't been successfully addressed. And I know the city government is doing their best, but um, the fact that we're such a rich town now with all the company, tech companies, uh, is. It's, and then, you know, and there's a lot of tourism here and stuff. It's not like San Francisco's Detroit or anything. You know, there, this, it should, People should be able to have housing and, and uh, welfare. And, and I don't know how to do it, but there are professionals out there who need to figure it out. Um, it is, it's hard. It's hard. And the library is really a magnet for a lot of homeless people as well. So um, it's something I see every day inside the library as well. Right. Um, a lot of, you know, people with mental disturbances, and, and that is what drew me to write that song. Uh, it's kind of about the hypocrisy of... It was at Christmas time that I wrote it, and uh, it just seemed like people were all concerned with like buying gift for their, gifts for their loved ones while mm-hmm. <laughs> other people are literally on the sidewalk right. <laughs> living...
2: Are you working on anything now?
1: Um, I write songs really slowly, so uh-huh. I wouldn't say I have a new album coming out anytime soon, but I, did, uh, I have started writing um, some solo material. But The Avengers actually takes up quite a bit of my time just with all the shows that, that are coming up and we just agreed to do a u.s tour with stiff little fingers oh and it's gonna be it's october 1st through november 7th so it's about 27 or 28 shows and it'll be our longest tour ever so and we'll be getting in a van and doing it how how how
2: much you never really you said you never left the state so is this well back then but
1: since reforming we've played across the country a bunch of times yeah you know, the East Coast, not so much in the Midwest, but we have driven across the country a few times. And then we've played Europe numerous times any, as well.
0: Any confused Marvel movie fans showing up at these shows? <laughs> never.
1: That was never, that was n- it's never been an issue. I think a lot of confused Marvel movie fans show up at like m- the Facebook site and maybe my, my website, but not to shows. If but. you go
2: to the iTunes store no, now, though, and put in the Avengers, even if you do album, it brings up all the soundtracks and stuff you gotta you gotta look for that pink uh,
0: dig people yeah
2: (laughs) so you've got an ivy room show coming up we're recording this on uh may 14th that is sold out um right that's
1: the 24th Uh, and that's a it's it's too bad it's sold out because we're danny the original bass player i mean the original drummer is coming and the show um, this show, and then we're also doing a show in LA on the 26th with with me, Greg, Danny, and then um, these are kind of celebrating the life of Jimmy Welcy, who our old bass player who passed on uh, Christmas Eve, and we have Hector Penalosa from the Zeros who's going to fill in on bass. Um, so we're doing these two shows with Danny, and then after that we'll go back to our regular lineup. Um, with Louis C. from Pansy Division and uh, Joel Reeder from Pansy Division, Mr. T. Those guys I've been playing with for like 18 years now, something like that. So it's like that's my classic lineup. And we'll be doing a show at Bottom of the Hill on Sunday of Gay Pride Weekend, which is June 30th. Nice. So that's the next SF show that there are actually tickets for. Uh-huh. And then we're going to go to, we have a jaunt in uh, Europe. We're going to play Canada, Uh, just a few shows in Canada and Europe and Italy. And then um, that's part of Europe. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, New York, uh, some New York shows. And then in October, we start this long, grueling thing. And that's also (laughs) with Hector. Peneleia from the Zeros and a drummer from who was in the Afflicted named David Bach who lives in L.A. who's going to do that with us because the other guys were had family commitments so yeah. they couldn't come on this long grueling <laughs> tour <laughs> across the country with stiff little fingers.
2: How many are you going to start and end here? I, Sadly, no. Uh, uh, no. It
1: starts in Phoenix and it'll come up the coast. We'll play Slims here, um, and then it goes up to Seattle and then it kind of bobs around in the middle of the country uh, in an uncontrolled way and then (laughs) down the coast and it ends in Florida and there's four dates in Florida where I've never been or played. (laughs) And I was like, why? And it ends there and then those guys are going off on a cruise, (laughs) the Flogging Molly, like punk rock cruise, Uh looks terrifying. Um, And we'll be driving our van uh, 3,000 miles across the country. Wow, all right. Except me, I'm gonna fly home. Yeah.
2: Okay, well that sounds like fun. Yeah.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, it'll be great. It'll be great. And I was I was thinking about it because I was looking at Stiff Little Fingers. They have, uh, if you go to their website, they have a merch page, and you look at their merch page, they've got like 20 different t-shirt designs. I mean, it's like, it's like an industry. Yeah. Right. And and I thought they got their brand going, but I don't want to have a brand. I just want to have these moments inside of songs that I can live and other people that are seeing us live can live in those moments and that's what I want for this tour
2: you know I think that's like I don't even want to talk anymore that's like the perfect Is ending that, for yeah. a podcast <laughs> <We're done. laughs> uh, I want to get to that bottom of the hill show and uh, uh, thank you so much for coming in yeah thank you for liking our archive and um, and for keeping punk alive in your archive and uh thanks for all the songs over the years
1: thank you Thank you. thank you it's been very pleasant
2: thanks penelope You are listening to the San Francisco Chronicle. Thank you to my guests Penelope Houston and Ideen Vaziri. Our producer today is me, Peter Hartlob. Supervising producers are King Kaufman, and Libby Coleman, executive producers Tim O'Rourke, and our editor-in-chief is Audrey Cooper. Our music is The Tide Will Rise by the Sunset Shipwrecks off their album Community. Read our columns and subscribe to the Chronicle at www.sfchronicle.com. Chronicle podcasts are on Apple Podcasts and other streaming services. Listen at www.sfchronicle.com podcasts with an S.